dictates the way you live. So I'm on a crusade to crucify the prosperity gospel. I hate the prosperity gospel. The Bible's not about you. So what is the foundation of your faith? I mean, why do you believe what you believe? The word of the living God. Faith built on emotion is faith built on sand. Jesus said you build on a rock or you don't build. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Skeptics Podcast. And today's podcast is titled, Things You Should Stop Saying to Single People. Now, this is something that's been on my mind, and perhaps a lot of single people's minds, if they're like me, they just never say it. But I want to get into a lot of the common phrases or words that are used and are often spoken to us that, although well-intentioned, they can be unbiblical and ultimately they can be damaging or even toxic. And these are things like, you know, you're still single because God isn't ready to share you yet, or referring to singleness as a season, or waiting on God in his timing, or waiting on the one, you know, phrases like that, all of which are usually told to us by married people who were married in their early 20s, a couple years out of high school, and they have no concept of what it means to actually wait, which is another reason why I'm making this podcast as being someone who has passed his late 20s and now is in my 30s and I'm still single, perhaps it might be better received by my single audience. Because, you know, if you're a Christian and you're still single past like 26, 27, you kind of become a black sheep or an, an odd duck, if you will. And so I guess you could say that because of my cir current circumstances, I, I feel it might be better received by my single audience. Now, this isn't to say that married people don't have any good words to share, but then again, you wouldn't, for instance, send someone who grew up in an upper-middle-class wealthy family to the slums or the poor to talk about the toils of poverty, right? They'd be like, who is this dude? Or, for instance, for someone who has cancer, they would, they would be better encouraged by someone who has cancer or is a cancer survivor because they can empathize with them, right? So that, that being said... Um, I, I wouldn't say that I'm qualified, but I, I feel like my single audience will be, it'll be better received by them from someone who has remained single um, all this time. All that being said, this podcast isn't just for single people, obviously. It's for um, married people and other people as well, because the title is Things You Shouldn't Say to Us. So it, it's kind of for everybody as well. But to kind of get into it, you know, why do I have a problem with these sayings? You know, why even cover this topic? And, you know, all, all the things that I'm going to cover, as I said before, although they're said with good intentions, they are not said to point us to Christ, but they're said to essentially boost our morale in hopes of finding a future spouse. So it ultimately, it takes our eyes off of Christ and can even lead us to bitterness towards God himself down the road. So without any further ado, let's let's get right into it. And the first thing I think that people should stop saying to single people um, are to us, and that is the word season, or referring to singleness as a season. And, you know, this, of course, you know, by using the word season, this implies change. And the, the change they're implying is, of course, marriage. And there are biblical grounds for using this phrase. You know, for instance, I believe probably where they get it from is Ecclesiastes, right? In Ecclesiastes uh, 3, um, Solomon goes into saying, you know, there's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up, and a time to be planted, um, a time to weep, a time to laugh. You know, you guys 
are probably all familiar with that that section of scripture. But really, the the backbone of all of it is the first line of how Solomon begins it, which is a time to be born and a time to die. You know, that's really the the backbone as it confines um, everything to our experiences in life. You know, from birth to death. Now, in writing this, he is not stating that each person in life will experience everything on the list that he goes out to to declare. For instance, in verse 8, he says, uh, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. You know, so by saying that, he's not saying that, okay, everybody's going to have war in their life, everybody's going to go to war and fight in a war. Like, no, he's not saying that. It's obvious that he isn't always literal. He's using metaphors such as, you know, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to plant, a time to pluck up. He is poetically describing the ups and downs of life, acknowledging that life has joy, yes, as well as sadness and tears and mourning. He goes on later in verse 11 to acknowledge that God makes everything beautiful in his time. You know, in his time, that's another thing you should stop saying. (laughs) I'll cover that later. But the gist is that God is in control and uses even the downsides of life to strengthen our faith in him, as it says in Romans 8 and in Romans 5, and to ultimately bring glory to God himself. Now then, why should we stop saying it? Because, you know, as I stated earlier, this is a list, not a summation and a guarantee what each person will experience um, of everything that life has to offer, but it is, it is a strong misuse of the text to then apply that to every circumstance as a season. Um, I might have said that word. Let me say it again. So this list is not a guarantee that each person will experience everything that life has to offer. Um, As I said, it it is a strong misuse of the text to then apply that to every circumstance by referring to it as a season. And um, by by using that word, they're they're using that by saying change is inevitable. You know, things are going to get better always. You know, for instance, in regards to trials, you know, God never promises that he will deliver us from all of our trials. But he does promise to be with us while we endure them and to strengthen our faith through them. The most common example, or maybe extreme example, we can think of is a cancer diagnosis, right? Now, it wouldn't be wrong to refer to that as a season of life if it is understood that by season, they mean it as scripture intends, which is life has its ups and downs. But it would be wrong to promise change or healing and use season in that context. And see, the latter is mainly how season is used when talking to single people. You know, they, they say things like, God is using you in this season of singleness to prepare you for your future spouse. Or be content in this season, and God will bring you the one in his time. You see, in every scenario, marriage, not Christ, is seen as the ultimate goal and everything that we should be striving for in this season. You know, ironically, even those telling us to be content and that God will bring you the one in his time are still not pointing us to Christ because they're pointing us to a hopeful future relationship. You know, it, it reinforces the idea of entitlement, which is that we are promised a spouse. You see, the, the world and, you know, even some within the church, they may call it soulmates, but more in the church, they kind of refer, refer to it as the one or the one that God has picked out for you. You see, but, but God never promises such a thing. You know, as it says in the beginning of Ecclesiastes, a time to live and a time to die. And really, those are the only two things we're promised in this life, is a time to live and a time to die. And in between, you know, God provi- God promises to provide for our day-to-days. 
but apart from that, in eternal life, that's really all we're promised, and, and persecution. Um, but we, we aren't even promised another day, let alone a spouse. So for many people, the season of singleness really just never ends because they either die before they have a chance to get married or they just grow old before they have a chance to get married. And they never really just run into the one because it just never happens for them. And that's the one I want to get into next, which is the next phrasing you should stop telling single people, which is using or referring to their spouse as the one. Now, this is where I believe Christian entitlement comes into play. Now, this is something that's that's very toxic that I think the church perhaps unintentionally has hammered into hammered into us. And that's, you know, growing up in the church, we kind of believe or have this idea that we're entitled to a spouse. You know, we, we believe that God has the one out there for us, but this is in no way biblical. You know, many people in the church, they, they, they treat love as if they're waiting for a train or for some big cloud parting moment where God brings the one into their life. But that's not how it works. I mean, how horribly sick is it for me to think that I am entitled to someone else or to someone else's affection? See, God doesn't make us love him. So why would it work that way for us? See, all it would take for the one principle to fall apart is for us to use our free will. By suggesting such a thing as the one, that then implies that you can marry the wrong one. Okay, well then what then? What now? And that's where the whole framework just kind of falls apart. All it would take is one wrong marriage or one divorce to where you're now married to the wrong person. And since you're married to the wrong person, they're mar- um, the person they're supposed to be married to is now married to somebody else's one. And the person they're supposed to be married to is now somebody else's one. And it's just like a domino effect and it just ruins everything. You see, the, the only th- command that God gives us is to not be unequally yoked. That's the only thing that God gives us or to not are to only marry within God's community. You know, this stretches as far back as, you know, Deuteronomy 7, when he told Israel not to marry with, um, intermarry from the Canaanites, right? You know, the first, the New Testament equivalent, equivalent is in 1 Corinthians when he says not to be unequally yoked. But the choice of a wife or a spouse was up to them. You see, God gave them boundaries in regards to marriage. He didn't provide spouses and there was no the one. You know, I, I love what John Piper says on this idea of the one and i actually just saw this quote um the other day maybe it was yesterday on instagram and he said the best way to know whether you are married to the right person is to look at the name on the wedding certificate now i just love that and also remember uh several years ago i remember a friend of mine who got married um who is of the same thinking as i am he didn't believe in the whole one thing as well and this is what he told me he said you know how i know that she's the one because when i asked her to marry me she said yes you see, the only time in scripture where we see God purposely bringing two people together was for their bringing about of the Messiah. That's it. You know, and I know a lot of people would come at me with, you know, what about Isaac and Rebecca? But again, that was for their bringing about of the Messiah, right? Now, I, w- I would beg of you, apart from the purpose of fulfilling biblical, pro- fulfilling biblical prophecy and the fulfillment of the Christ, where is this found? Show me any other biblical examples where God not only provides spouses, but promises them. You see, God, although unchanging, did move and work and speak in different ways before Christ and the completion of the canon of Scripture. We see that in Hebrews 1. But we should no longer, for instance, be doing fleece testing as our ultimate source of truth, as referring to Gideon. You know, really, when we need confirmation for something, we go to Scripture, 
as it contains all things pertaining to life and godliness. So, you see, when we come to the realization that we're not entitled to a relationship, it's liberating because we can then stop blaming God and when it doesn't happen. You know, because marriage is not a right. Let me say that again. Marriage is not a right, but it is a blessing. And for some people, for whatever reason, just never get a partake of it. You know, for instance, one uh, one time I met a man, um, this is maybe like almost 10 years ago. Uh, he was in his late 60s, early 70s. And, you know, I asked him if he had a wife or if he ever got married. And he was like, oh, no, I never got married. I, I always wanted to, but I missed that train. You see, we need to bring ourselves down to reality and realize that we're not, as I've said before, not even promised another day. And I, I don't want to misrepresent what I'm saying, as I do believe singleness is a blessing as well. We know this from 1 Corinthians 7, which I'll get into a little bit later on. But what matters most is not our earthly relationships, but our eternal relationship, which is with God. As we know, marriage relationships are going to end at death anyways. So, you know, going back to what I said earlier and how people treat love as if they're waiting for a train. You know, I think this is a great lesson because not in just regards to finding a spouse, but just in life in general. So I'm going to go kind of on a rabbit trail here, but it, it does have a point, I promise. But this is a, kind of a personal story of um, kind of where I got the whole train scenario from. And it was around 10 years ago. Uh, I, I moved here to Washington 10 years ago. And I was still pretty young, about a year out of high school. And I was still pretty or very immature. And, you know, there was an elder in my church who would take me out to eat once a week. And he would kind of share wisdom with me. And uh, one of the words of advice that he gave me which I didn't really take into consideration until later when I began to repent, which was the words of waiting on a train. Now, now at the time, I was living in a room in somebody else's garage. I wasn't paying rent, and I really didn't have any life goals. You know, I was young. I have time. That's what I thought. I figured I would just do some—I um, figured God would just do something, and whatever happens, happens. You know, I don't know what I was expecting. If I was expecting a, a career to magically fall on my lap, I don't know. I was just being stupid and lame and not doing anything with my life. And anyways, uh, this elder, he noticed, and he said that what he saw in me was that it was like I was waiting on a train. You know, I was just standing there doing nothing, waiting for something to happen, just being passive. Now, this is not how we are to be. Now, I, although I do believe there is wisdom in being led by the Spirit and acting according, acting according to God's will and trusting His providence... It, it, but although all that being said, it is laziness to take that to the extreme and do nothing, expecting God to move, you know, which is essentially what I was doing and what he said. You know, he told me I, I can't be passive. He said, I, I need to start doing something with my life. I need to, to push on doors and see what opens. And if God closes it, then he closes it. It wasn't his will. But I just couldn't stand there being passive. But, you know, I was stupid and young. I shrugged it off because I was a pathetic loser. And I believe it, was, it wasn't until like maybe like a year or so later that I literally had a come-to-Jesus moment where I met up with a father of a friend of mine who wanted to speak to me. And personal details left out. What I can say of the conversation is that he tore me to shreds. Um, you know, unlike my brother and this elder who were both trying their best and their best intentions to set me straight... They kind of had the more soft approach, right? Like my brother would be like, "Hey, Pete, you kind of like need a man up," you know, because he's my, he's my brother, right? He's like loving and kind, and but not this guy, right? He tore 
into me like no other. And like he he said, you know, you're a boy, you need to man up. And he, you know, he asked me what the heck I was doing with my life because I was like a 20, 20 21 year old working at a woman's craft store. I, you know, I worked at Michael's at the time, I, like ten hours a week. And what he basically said was, I don't like you. You're a boy. You need a man up. And but it was a lot meaner. And I can't really say it as he said it because he had the, um, he was just a really really manly kind of guy. And he just tore, he said it in such a way that it just made me cry. Anyways, um. But when I say that he he didn't like me, I, I knew what he meant, and he wasn't saying that he didn't um, didn't like me in an unbiblical sense, and he wasn't saying that he hated me. But what he was saying was that he didn't have one iota of respect for me, and that he saw me for who I really was, which was a selfish, young, immature boy who needed to man up and repent. And this is exactly that's exactly what I needed. You know, the the soft approach wasn't working, and. This was probably the biggest turning point in my life, in my walk with God, as I drove home literally weeping, like literally crying all the way home because I knew he was right and that I needed to make a change. And it was from there that I repented from being lazy. I repented to the people I lived with. I started making career choices. You know, I loved acting, but I knew it wasn't a realistic choice as a career. But I figured, hey, I could why not teach it? You know, so I signed up for college classes to work towards becoming a like a drama teacher for like high school or whatever. But you know, the thing, the point was, is that I started pushing on doors, and obviously, you know, God has shut those doors, and some of my desires have changed or shifted. But the point is, is that I've been pushing on doors ever since, and this is how I believe we should approach things in life. You know, not passively, and especially when it comes to relationships. You know, as earlier stated, you know, many young Christian adults are just waiting around, hanging out with no intentions of pursuit, and they're just kind of waiting for some feeling or some guidance from the Holy Spirit or God that this person or that person's the one, and they're perhaps waiting on a feeling that's never going to come. And even if that feeling does come, it is more often than not just our feeling, our feelings telling us that this person's the one when in fact it wasn't God at all. And what I mean by that is, you know, if, you, if you've listened to previous podcasts or follow me at all, you know, we are against following feelings when they contradict the, contradict the word of God. But, you know, a lot of times we, we mistake our love, our, feeling for some, our feelings for somebody as God telling you that they're the one. Now, um, let, it, let it be stated that I'm not saying romantic feelings are bad. I'm not saying that at all. They are in fact good. And I believe that they are a gift from God. And, you know, for instance... Um, I wouldn't want to marry somebody who I didn't have romantic feelings for. Um, you know, yes, feelings do fade, and it is a choice to continue loving your spouse when feelings or whatever or the fireworks um, die out. But I think we all can acknowledge that feelings are at least the spark that gets things moving, right? So, you know, what I'm trying to say is this, is that people can mistake those feelings as someone being from God, as I said earlier. They, Therefore... You know, it's God telling them that so-and-so is the one, or in reality, it's just their own feelings. Now, if the person does feel the same way, and you both choose each other, then yes, they are the one. But let's not confuse our feelings as being from the Holy Spirit. You know, I have yet another personal example of um, back when I was young and stupid. Back when I was in my early to mid-twenties, there was this certain girl who I had um, taken affections for, and... I uh, I prayed. I said, like, God, let her be the one. Because like, I really like this girl. And 
You know, I, I kid you not. I heard God tell me that she was the one a dozen different ways. Like if I was ever sure that I heard God's voice, it was that he told me that she was the one. Like I prayed for confirmation dozens and dozens of times, like fleece testing, right? But, and he confirmed it every single time. Or so I thought. You see, hindsight, it's twenty twenty. You see, what I saw wasn't actually God confirming my prayers. It was just self-fulfilling prophecy. And what do, I, what do I mean by that? Being that I just saw confirmation because I was looking for it. And a, a good example is, this isn't something that I actually prayed, but an example would be, hey, Lord, if she's the one, then let me see a yellow car on the highway. And then sure enough, when you get on the interstate, you pass by a yellow car. Now, was that really God telling you that she was the one, or did you just happen to see a yellow car because you're looking for it? Like, obviously, it's the latter, right? Like, you just see it because you're looking for it. You know, another good example is, you know, I'm sure you guys have all been in a situation where it's, like, really, really quiet, and the quiet's so, like, thick, you can feel it, so you just uh, kind of start listening for ambient background noise, and then you, like, hear ticking up a clock or something, right? Like, you never heard that clock before, but you hear it now because you're listening for it. You know, and that's kind of what our brain does. Our brain kind of tunes out uh, steady, constant noises. But when we listen for it, we hear them, right? So the fact that you're hearing that clock isn't... like the, the, the ticking clock didn't appear out of nowhere to confirm something. It was always there ticking. You're just now hearing it because you're listening for it. So that, that's, that's what self-fulfilling prophecy is. And I, I believe that's how confirmation is handled a lot these days, is people are using external experiences not the word of God, to try to confirm their reality. We, we, we see and we hear what we want to see. And, you know, there's a saying that um, I, I hear pastors say it sometimes, which is, there's no coincidences for the Christian. And I have to dis disagree with that at least a little bit because, you know, ultimately, yes, all things do work together for good for his purpose, for those who love God, you know, Romans. But it's for God's purpose. You know, there's no coincidences for God because God knows everything. But for us, you know, some things just happen. You know, sometimes you run into that person at the certain place at a certain time and you prayed for confirmation and, and things just happened to happen and it wasn't a sign from God. They just, it just happened. It was a coincidence, right? So I'm, I'm willing to bet that I'm not the first person who has ever had affections for someone to the point where I prayed to God for them to be the one. I, I, I'd like to think I'm not the only person who has ever prayed that prayer. But, um, you know, you, you do hear of anecdotal stories of people whose stories started out similar to mine. You know, they met somebody, they felt God saying that they were the one, they prayed for confirmation, they got it, and lo and behold, it came to pass, they got married, and, you know, I've heard love, love stories like this. Now, this isn't to, you know, discredit their love story or say that it wasn't exactly from God, but when we are overcome by affections and wanting someone to be the one, you know, odds are it's going to happen for somebody out there eventually. I mean, it happens for thousands of people every single day. Like, there's over 100,000 marriages a day. I mean, I looked it up. There's like 115,000 marriages a day on average. So, like, obviously, yes, eventually you're going to meet somebody where it's mutual and, you know, they're the one. But I wouldn't say that it was because God specifically chose that person for you out of time or that he answered your prayers by making them fall in love with you. Like, no, like, you chose them, they chose you, and by committing to each other, through that, they become the one. Now, before I dig myself in, in too big of a hole here, am I saying that God doesn't have a hand in our marriage whatsoever? No, of course not. 
You know, how could I justify that the author of marriage doesn't have a part of it? I'm not saying that at all. So um, we know that in, in Psalms 127, verse 3, it says that children are a heritage from the Lord. We know that kids are from God, so it would naturally follow that a spouse to procreate those children are also from God as well. And, you know, it, it wouldn't make sense to say that children are from God, but your spouse isn't. You know, in Proverbs, I believe, um, brings the two together, that is, man's will and God's sovereignty. And, and it brings it nicely together on this subject. In Proverbs 18.22, it says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Or Proverbs 16.9, it says, A heart of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. See, it's going back to that, you know, pushing on doors and see what opens. And God will open and close what he wills. But, so that, that's where I believe that, you know, God's sovereignty and man's will kind of comes together nicely. Is yet, Yes, we're out there, we're, we're finding our spouse, we're working for, pursuing someone. And if they choose us, great, then they're the one. And they're still from God because, um, you know, as it says in James 1.17, all good things are from God. And we know that when God created man and woman, he didn't just say it was good, he said it was very good. And so, you know, what I'm saying is that taking it to the completely passive, entitled approach, that is what is wrong. So if you're just, you know, sitting around waiting for it to happen, then you're probably going to be single the rest of your life. And, you know, you could be walking by the one every Sunday at church and not even know it. So, you know, men, if you have things in common with a girl and she's a believer and you're attracted to her, then I would say go for it. Because, you know, if you're waiting for confirmation on her being the one, then, you know, you're going about it all wrong. And I would say, like, if you really do need confirmation, then I would say, you know, ask them out. If they say yes to a date and you end up dating and you're marrying them, then there's a confirmation. But until you have that ring on that finger, then there's no confirmation and you're still single. See, there's no dating or engaged to God. See, in God's eyes, you're either married or you're single. There's no betrothed, there's no engaged, it's just married or single. That's how God sees you. So this might, you know, perhaps account for why there are so many s single Christians at a later age, is because they wasted their time waiting or seeking confirmation rather than actually pursuing a relationship that could actually lead to marriage. And because, you know, they're just sitting around waiting. And that's the next phrasing I want to get into, um, which should stop saying what you should stop saying to single people, which is wait, or waiting on God's timing. Or he'll bring you the one in his time. Or God's timing is perfect, right? All of which are true, but these are being applied to imply that God does have a spouse for us in his time. And as I've covered before, this isn't promised in scripture at all. I also think that the American dream has seeped its way into the church. And that is the whole point of a life is to achieve the American dream. You know, a wife, a kids, a house, a career. Again, not bad. But this is what we think the epitome of Christian life is. You know, a lot of Christian churches treat marriage this way, as if by entering marriage you have now entered a new tier of Christianity and you're now a super Christian now. Now, I know marriage is tough, as anybody who's been married, who's talked to me, will tell you that marriage is the hardest thing that you'll ever do in your entire life because we like to think of it as just this endless, amazing sleepover with your best friend, when in reality it's, you know, super, super difficult. But, you know, single people, I believe, are still given a great disservice because they think they aren't fulfilling their ultimate calling by remaining single. And not until marriage will they become a worthier Christian. 
and you know none of which I said above is you know outright taught in churches like nobody from the pulpit preaches these things but I do feel and have felt it when I have attended certain churches it's almost like this it's almost like as if it's this unspoken ideal or belief system that hovers around never actually being said and what we must do is we must go to what scripture says and what God says about singleness and going into first uh, Corinthians 7 we know that uh, Paul talks about how it is a blessing to be single and even sometimes to remain single um, in first Corinthians 7 7 Paul says I wish you were all that I wish you were all as I am being that single I wish you were all single as I was single of course in this instance Paul isn't saying this in a universal sense um, because you know if that were the case then and all the Christians took this literally then no Christians would marry and it would completely contradict you know God's command to be fruitful and multiply whatever but um, he was he was saying that what was going on at the time in Corinth that Paul gave such advice being that you know given the present circumstances of what's going on right now I think it would be better if you did not marry but even then Paul follows up his own words by saying but if they cannot exercise self-control or if they burn with passion get married now th this phrasing when Paul says get married it was actually a command so when Paul wrote the words get married it was a, a command in the Greek being that if they were no longer able to um, control themselves sexually or if they are burning with lust then he says get married so so that you are no longer burning with passion and so that you can have sex without sinning that was the purpose of him saying that now this command is of course fulfilled by a couple willing to commit to each other but what about everybody else what about those who don't have fiancés how do they fulfill this command when they are burning with passion right so you know we go back kind of rewinding a little bit um or going back or sorry further in the scripture where it says in first corinthians seven thirty-two, he says that by being unmarried we are able to devote our entire selves to god while the married person's attentions are divided unto their spouse now there's nothing wrong with giving attention to your spouse we ought to and as we see from ephesians you know the husbands are to provide and love their wife as Christ loved the church that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of the water of the word right so we know from singleness or from the word that we know from the Bible in, in 1st Corinthians in the section that singleness is a gift from God as well in uh, later on in the chapter in speaking to the betrothed Paul repeats himself by saying in verse 38 of chapter 7 he says um, he who refrains from marriage does better given during like, also in the context during the circun certain circumstances sorry tripping over my words there but he's also saying that being in those present circumstances if they are able to control themselves it was better to devote themselves and their attention to the Lord but even if not let them marry it is not a sin as he says earlier in verse 36 so how does this apply to single people who are not betrothed as I asked earlier how like how can we um, fulfill this command of not being um, sexually immoral and how do we like just okay uh, Paul you commanded us to get married if we're burning with passion but I have no one to get married to so how do we how do we fulfill this command and I think we look just no further than what he says in 1st Corinthians 6 he says that we are still called to flee from all forms of sexual immorality see we can apply this to us in the exact same way in the present circumstances remain single 
Focus all of your devotions to God. And if marriage comes, men, direct your devotions direct those devotions into feeding the soul of your wife and your kids and women devote yourself to your husband and to the instruction of your kids but until then just flee from sexual immorality and pursue christ for the sake of christ now some people might be asking you know what if but what if i'm called to be single like what if the reason i'm still single is because god wants me to be single or god is calling me to be single and you know what if paul actually wants me to remain as he is as he states in that verse. And I would say to that, um, we know from Jesus' words in Matthew 19, he says, he says that there are indeed those who are called to be eunuchs, are single for Christ. But even Christ himself, at the end of that, he says, let him who is able to receive it, receive it. So it seems that Paul and Christ agree on this matter here, being that if you can remain single, do so. And if not, don't. So it's kind of that simple. Although there is no wording in the Bible that says gift of singleness, it is heavily implied that those who do or are called to remain single are able to receive it. And the reason they're able to receive it is probably because they're given some kind of supernatural removal of that desire for marriage. So I guess one way to check to see if you have the gift of single is have the gift of singleness is this. Do you have the desire to be married? Yes? Good then you don't have the gift of singleness. There you go. <laughs> it's really that simple. Um, but this is where I think it can get confusing to some people because they think, okay, so if God doesn't call me to be single, then he's obviously calling me to be married. And if he's calling me to be married, then he must provide a spouse. Like one must follow the other, right? Not necessarily. One does not validate the other. For instance, just because you're not, you're not gifted in playing basketball doesn't mean that you're called to go play hockey and should try out for the NHL, right? Let me say that again. Just because you aren't gifted in playing basketball doesn't mean that you're automatically called to go play hockey. You see, one doesn't validate the other. And this is where I think a lot of people get hung up. They think that just because they're not called to be single, they think that they're entitled to a spouse, as I said earlier. And you know, they realize that they aren't called to be single so what do they do? They spend their entire life trying not to be single, which is viewing it all wrong. And, you know, there's this quote I saw that says, we ought not to waste our singleness by viewing it as a trial to be endured. Let me say that again. We ought not to waste our singleness by viewing it as a trial to be endured. You know, that last quote, I think, perhaps is echoed in all the advice that's given to us, or mostly advice that's given to us as single people. And, you know, things like wait on the one God has for you. This implies a happy ending, a great spouse to end this trial that you're in. Or the wait on the one, the one who, the one who will end this trial of singleness or use the word season. In fact, I think season and trial perhaps are used unintentionally synonymously here. You know, this, this season of life that you're in or this trial of life, that's kind of how they mean it. And all of which is just going about it all wrong. And, you know, lastly, I want to, um, the last phrasing that people should stop saying is you're still single because God's not ready to share you yet. I, I hate that saying so much because I see it shared on Instagram and, uh, I don't know, people probably share it on their Pinterest boards. I don't have a Pinterest, uh, um, but it's just, okay. Like for one, that one just makes me do a face palm because 
as if we are just like the greatest little treasure that God wants to bless somebody else with one day. We aren't depraved wretches whose hearts aren't deceitfully wicked above all else, worthy of hellfire. So, you know, we deserve hell, but a spouse as well? Like, no. Everything, every breath you receive, every day you live, even a spouse, yes, is a gift from God. But that's just to say, it's a blessing and it's a gift, but it's not something that we're entitled to or should be expected. You know, saying that he, uh, you know, Jesus himself said that, you know, he only promises to provide for today and let tomorrow worry about itself. And just the whole phrasing, you know, you're just single because God's not ready to share you yet. It's just really what it's doing is just feeding our ego and boosting our morale. And, you know, it's taking our eyes off Christ and putting it onto ourself. That's really what it's doing. And, you know, all these things, all of them take our eyes off Christ. All of them make marriage the thing to work towards rather than a relationship with Christ. You know, they make a relationship, uh, a marriage relationship, the ultimate marriage, or they make the marriage relationship the ultimate relationship rather than a relationship with God, the ultimate relationship. And, you know, they, they, they say these things to us, as I said, with good intentions. And we, with good intentions, inadvertently take that advice, and we perhaps maybe wait on God or even pursue God with marriage in the back of our mind. And what I mean by that is, you know, like, yeah, we, we pursue God wholeheartedly, but we pursue Christ to prepare ourselves for what reason? To become a good spouse for our future husband or wife, right? Which isn't bad in and of itself to prepare yourself for marriage, but when you think about it, pursuing yourself in Christ so that you can prepare yourself for marriage, like, what about just pursuing Christ for the sake of Christ? Like, why do we have to pursue Christ with marriage in mind? You know, what, what, what good is pursuing Christ for the sake of a spouse if, you know, what if you die before you get married? It's pursuing Christ with ulterior motives is what it is. And, you know, we just need to pursue Christ, I would say, for the sake of Christ and let marriage come as it will if it comes. So, you know, what's my advice to all the single people out there? You know, do that. Just pursue Christ for the sake of Christ. And what's my advice to all the married people or whatever people giving advice to single people, giving advice to people like me? Like, what do I want to hear? That's what I want to hear. I want people to tell me, pursue Christ for the sake of Christ and nothing else. Like, if God blesses you with a spouse, great. But stop saying all those former things that I brought up. Because really all that matters is Christ. You know, forget about a future spouse because that will be your aim. Just pursue God for the sake of God. And, you know, if God doesn't bring you a spouse, then great. Your life was not wasted in any way whatsoever because you pursued Christ for the sake of him alone. And if you meet somebody, men, don't think it's a sin to pursue that person or to pursue that girl towards marriage. It's not. And if you get married, great. She's the one. And if that happens, do as I said before. Love her, guide her, wash her in the water of the word, raise kids to be godly men and women. But if not, and you don't get married, then great. It wasn't God's will. She wasn't the one. And all your attention is still devoted to Christ. See, it doesn't matter which way or what path you take, whether you get married or not, Christ is the center, is the crux of everything. So let me let me close with this. Um, another thing that's often said is, you know, people want to pursue Christ or they want to get themselves ready for marriage. And I want to close with this. You know, I can't remember who said it, but what they said was, if everybody waited until they were ready for marriage to get married, 
then no one would get married. I mean, that is, I'm not even married and I understand that. You know, if everybody waited until they were ready for marriage to get married, then no one would get married. So my advice in that is, you know, stop trying to prepare yourself in a sense for marriage or trying to stop trying to get ready for marriage because you're never going to be ready for marriage. You can never prepare enough because, because marriage is a beast in and of itself that no one can prepare for until you're actually in it. So my advice would be to just stop it, focus on God for God alone, pursue God for God alone, and don't worry about it. Because when marriage comes, yeah, you're not going to be ready for it, but God's going to grow you both into better people because marriage apparently is difficult. So, and when it comes, it comes, or if it comes, it comes. Now, I know all of this is easier said than done. Um, anybody who knows me or has known me for a while knows that being single is something that I've struggled with constantly. I, I go back and forth from being content to discontent. And I mean, I think single people out there can relate. I mean, even psychology talks about how human connection and interaction is one of the human's greatest needs or desires. It's just something that's innate with innate inside of us, right? I mean, even God himself in the beginning when he created Adam and Eve, he said it is not good that man should be alone. So like it even kind of implies that Adam had kind of a sense of like I need someone, right? Because you know Adam was looking around, he saw all the animals had two pairings, but he was alone. And God's like, it's not good that man should be alone. And I, I think it's kind of interesting that even man, in his perfect state, still kind of desired a wife. Um, that's kind of aside the point. That that doesn't nullify the fact that we should all just want a wife, because obviously man sinned, man fell. Everything's kind of in a sense changed, not really changed. Um, the original design of marriage hasn't changed, but our ultimate completion of you know being sanctified in Christ that that's kind of what's shifted is that you know yes God kind of redeemed us to Himself, and because of the fall, and because of sin, and because of death, um, death now separates people after marriage. So you know sin screwed everything up as far as. Um, but anyway, what my point is is that. I can't remember what my point was. I was kind of going off on a tangent there. But anyways, I'll just kind of end with this by saying that, as I said before, pursue Christ for the sake of Christ. And married people, other people, couples, you know, stop saying these phrases or these words to single people, as I'm sure as a single person myself and even the people you say them to, I'm sure they've, I'm not alone in thinking these thoughts. Um, we don't actually say them to you, but this is probably what we're, what they're probably thinking. Um, so if you want to give them encouragement, just tell them to pursue Christ and that if they don't get married, their life is not wasted because anything else is just feeding that addiction or feeding that desire to want something other than Christ himself. So anyways, I'll just end with that. And as always, test all things with scripture. Test everything I've said with scripture. If you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me at skepticspodcast at gmail.com. But anyways... Stay skeptical, pursue Christ, and thanks for listening. Take care.